Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and just beyond the soapboxing politicians and bright, flashy busyness of modern life is a subtle world of mystery and myth that struggles to be seen, yet alone understood by modern man, and a culture that's as preoccupied with digital screens as it is desperate to restore meaning from its current shallow state. Today, encounters with the anomalous are written off as mistaken identity, stories made up by attention seekers, or some cable network money grab. But nearly every culture outside of our arrogant own has a place for spirit, myth, imagination, and beings between the worlds. From elves, fairies, and Bigfoot to lake monsters, sea serpents, and the siren, we have a very long history of strange sightings, stories, and encounters with entities unexplainable by a materialist context, but we dare not change the model. And despite our disbelief, these things don't go away, but some say actually shift form to reflect the changing times or command attention in a distracted world. But try as they might, even Mothman, Grey Aliens, and Men in Black still struggle to get a seat at the table of our awareness. Well, that's what today's guests are here to correct, as they've studied the old ways of the Greek philosophers and other cultures who map these realities, were both raised in a family that kept the door to spirit wide open, and have written great books to help the rest of us get back on track. You might remember Patrick Harper from an interview we did in 2018 covering his books Daemonic Reality, A Field Guide to the Otherworld, the Secret Tradition of the Soul, and the Philosopher's Secret Fire. And as great as it is to have him back today, we're also joined by his sister, Marilee Harper, who's recently released a revised and updated edition of her book, Mystery Big Cats, a very thorough expose on one particular type of demonic manifestation that she says is now the commonest encounter with the unknown in Britain. After reading her book, I am very psyched to get into it, so let's do it. The dynamic duo from Dorset restoring the demonic reality for a culture lost, Marilee and Patrick Harper, welcome to the higher side. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> I like dynamic duo from Dorset. Yes, very good flow to that. Yeah. You know, I still get people saying that of the interviews and episodes I've done that explore the paranormal side of life and explain the structure of all of that. 
Yours is a real standout, so it's great to have you back on board for this. And Merrily, it is a pleasure to meet you as well. When Patrick told me about your book, Mystery Big Cats, I was interested, but just wasn't quite sure that we could build a full show around it, because even if what are called anomalous big cats, ABCs, are more than just undiscovered animals, they obviously resemble known animals, so they don't have the epic punch as something like Mothman or the Chupacabra or fairies that talk to people or take them underground even, and we have all this lore surrounding that. But your book is about as dense and thorough as a book on this subject could be, and the mystery does run quite deep. I guess I would ask, though, what is it about anomalous big cats that captured your attention over other daimonic manifestations, let's say? Well... Greg, listen, it's an honor to be on your show. Um, <laughs> Patrick has told me that I should be very honored, and I am. So <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> but the thing about these mystery big cats is they are commonly seen, and Britain, of course, as you know, is a country that doesn't have any big cats native to it at all. I mean, we hardly have anything bigger than a, than a pig, really. We have deer, I suppose, but, you know, that's a different matter. So I'm always a bit nervous about American listeners because they would assume that naturally you would have pumas roaming around in the way that perhaps you'd do in, in your part of the States. But they're a very shocking sight to us Brits. I mean, you would see them in a zoo or sometimes in a private collection or something like that. But one of the most fascinating things about... Um, the mystery big cats of Britain are, I suppose, thousands are seen every year, but they're nearly all, I suppose about 85% of them are black, and I mean completely black, not in the way that a melanistic leopard is black, which is to say very, very dark brown, but you can see the spots shining through in sunlight, um, but actually jet black, and that's a very rare thing. And the other sort of 15%, I suppose, are sightings of brown or tan animals that resemble pumas, as we call them, mountain lions, as you would call them, maybe, or cougars. The confusing thing is that we call the black animals that we see black panthers, whereas, in fact, you know, in real life, panthers aren't a separate species. They're just a word for a black leopard, basically. So it's confusing from the outset that not only do we have big cats, but we have what look like very rare black leopards, only not even rare black leopards, because they seem to be blacker than that. So there seems to be a separate thing again. But some of the most interesting sightings are of American humans, and there's lots of different suggestions where they could have come from. One of them is that perhaps GIs who were stationed in Britain during the Second World War left them behind as mascots and they bred, which is a sort of rather interesting thought, but not very practical. There's a lot of speculation about where they could have come from, these big cats. People see them fleetingly, they cross the road, they see them in the woods, they see them crossing their gardens, they appear 
here and there and then sort of magically disappear. Or when I say magically, people are terrified at the sight of them, obviously, and they call the police and the police search and go up in helicopters and things with thermal imaging equipment and everything, and they never find them. So it's kind of disturbing. The awful thing is that there's a huge discrepancy between the evidence from eyewitnesses, which is incredibly detailed and usually absolutely cast iron, and the amount of physical evidence on the ground. People still haven't found, you know, the body of a black panther. They still haven't found anything that they could really pin on there being an actual species living out here in Britain undiscovered. So it reminds me of your Bigfoot searchers in America, and I suppose northwest of your country particularly, um, or Sasquatch, as you call them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's masses of evidence, and it's all anecdotal. And it's absolutely brilliant evidence. But they're still looking for that body, I think, aren't they? Yes, they are. And that's a pretty good introduction to the mystery, as you say. Nowhere in Great Britain are big cats like this native. And people can do all kinds of mental gymnastics to try to figure out how physical big cats would have gotten there. But nothing really holds water. Sometimes in these sightings, the cats take the shape of a mountain lion or a puma, but a lot of the time they are a velvety jet black. So if these are real animals out there, now you have to find multiple species of big cat. So the mystery grows deeper. Then, of course, you got to contrast thousands of sightings, some very odd, with there being zero dead bodies. But there are even more good points that further the case that these are not wild animals or escapees from a zoo or some private collection. What would those be? Give the people a little more in that regard. Beyond just the lack of dead bodies, what are some of the other bullet points that let us know this is much stranger than it might seem at first? Well, Greg, the thing is there are sort of the three main mysteries about these creatures. One is the, the big cat experience, which people have, which they see them strolling across their fields. And the second mystery is, as I've just said, so many of them are jet black. Few of them are brown. And the third mystery is there are no spots. So the thing is that people really scrape the barrel when they, when they try and imagine how these creatures could have come to pass in our country. Mm, indeed, and so often we just accept the easy answer and we don't look any further into it. Although, as you said, that was another one of the big ones. Not only are they never found dead or even trapped, but there are thousands of reports of tan ones, thousands of reports of black ones, but no reports of any with spots. I think your notification kind of drowned you out at that point. And I'm sorry I got you in this precarious situation with this new software and you're sharing a single set of earbuds. I know it's not easy, but... Anyway, it's significant because the leopards with the spots are the same species of cat as the black ones, and spots are far more common. People also claim to see lynxes and pumas with lynx-like ears, so they're definitely not describing some wild animal or even the same thing. 
If you know anything about big cats, these three mysteries, as you put it, should be enough to make the case that conventional explanations don't stack up. And we didn't even talk about the paranormal aspects of these sightings yet. But let's fast forward to that a bit. So we've established there is more to the mystery than anyone might think at first. Well, Patrick, let me bring you in here because the long and short of it is that these big cat sightings might be diamonds, and it's been a while since that last talk we had. Remind the people how the Greeks describe diamonds and what their place and function in reality is. Definitely important context if that is in fact what we might be dealing with here. Yeah, sure. I mean, I ought to emphasize that Merrily went the naturalistic route at great length and in great depth first before she had to turn in desperation to my theory of daimones. You know, it's not like that was her first port of call. Yeah, I basically borrowed from the ancient Greeks the term daimones as a general word to stand for those supernatural creatures which all cultures at all times have recognized. It's not like they're exceptional. I mean, there are the fairies in Ireland, there are the elves in Europe, there are the jinn in Arabia. Every First Nation tribe in the United States would attest to daimonic beings, you know, who they interact with. And so it's all the more remarkable that the Western world has now completely ignored these creatures. But one of the reasons they're ignored is, is they just, oh, you know, they have at least five characteristics which just don't fit our model of the world. For example, they're always ambiguous and contradictory. For example, they can be both benevolent and malignant, like the fairies. Diamonds are always tricky, always mischievous. So they can be anything from extremely helpful to life-threatening. But their main contradiction, of course, and the one that is the great stumbling block to all investigators of paranormal anomalous animals is they can be both material and immaterial. And that's something it's very difficult to get your head around. It's not like they are either physical or kind of spirit things. They seem to be able to manifest as one or the other or both at once. Secondly, they're always elusive usually fast-moving and usually disappearing in the twinkling of an eye. That's a characteristic of all daimons. Very important, thirdly, is that they shapeshift, not just in space, but across time, interestingly, so that whenever we try and banish them from one field of study, they pop up in another. For example, in daimonic reality, I try and make the case that when the daimones that appear naturally in nature were discredited, banished, poo-pooed altogether, they appear in another place altogether, and in this case in the Victorian drawing rooms, as spirits of the seance, who manifested the same strange, tricksterish, quasi-material substance as the daimones in nature did. And I would even argue that when they were banished from when spiritualism went out of fashion, they may well reappear as subatomic particles. If you describe an electron, for instance, 
it has all the daimonic characteristics. It's contradictory, it's both the wave of the particle, it's very elusive, it's fast-moving, and so on and so on. So these creatures are, I mean, what else are they? They're marginal. They always appear in what's popularly called liminal zones, you know, threshold places, bridges, crossroads, seashores, things like that. And also at sort of threshold times, midnight, midsummer eve, that's the great time of the fairies. Halloween, that's an old pagan festival, which was a kind of a hinge of the year and so on. They also appear, of course, between sleeping and waking, for instance. That's a liminal zone, a more psychological one. They appear, as it were, between the consciousness and the unconscious. So all attempts to categorize them or bring them into mainstream orthodoxy, whether it's in the olden days, the church, who banished them, didn't believe in them, or nowadays science, which just ignores them or suppresses them, they'll never actually become mainstream as Bigfoot researchers or ufologists know to their cost and so on. And it may be finally that the role of the diamonds is, as Socrates said, intermediary between us and the gods. This ties up with their contradictory nature. They mediate between the material and the immaterial, between the personal and the impersonal, between this world and the other world. They even mediate between fact and fiction. It's difficult to know in folklore whether personal encounters with folkloric creatures, supernatural creatures, come before the stories that are subsequently told about them, or vice versa. It's very difficult to disentangle fact and fiction. In fact, it may not be useful to disentangle them. So, experts in diamonds, they've always been experts, as Socrates says, you know, that there are certain daimonic men and daimonic women who have conversation with this other world. And... They used to be wise women, shamans, mediums, witch doctors, whatever. Nowadays, they tend to be, I don't know, poets, visionaries. You know, it still goes on. So that would be my loose categorization or description of what daemons are like and what their characteristics are. Mm. <laughs> I love it. The daemonic model does make the most sense to me. But it does take a lot to get our attention these days. We're so distracted and on a different page that Mothman, Grey Aliens, and Thunderbirds can barely get us to look up from our phones. If these diamonds can walk between the worlds and take different forms, why this form at this time? Is there any logic or reasoning you guys can put to why they would choose to appear as big cats in the last few decades? Oh God! Well, that's the big question, Greg. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I can answer that. But when Patrick was talking about, you know, sort of demonic experiences and the impossibility of getting our heads around that demonic world, I was just going to give you an example, actually, of a woman who just contacted me a couple of days ago with the description of the big cat she had encountered. And it is so interestingly 
tangible and real and at the same time so strange that I thought it might interest you. Sure. The woman is called Joyce Thomas and she lives in Wales. And she said it was in September 2009. And it was past midnight and she'd bid goodnight to her husband who was watching television downstairs and she'd gone up to bed. And it was a warm night and she opened her window to enjoy a few quiet moments breathing in the evening air. And this is what she said. She said, as I leaned out, I saw a flash of movement directly below me as a shadow darted out around the corner of the porch and off into the yard area. This movement was so fast and silent that I thought I must have been mistaken. However, within a minute or two, I became aware that the darting shadow had reappeared in the yard, and to my astonishment, as I stood there staring out at the garden, the cat dashed directly in the dead straight line across our yard right in front of my eyes and disappeared under the rose arch and out into the blackness of the garden itself. The speed with which this occurred was breathtaking, and it seemed that this animal was pursuing a dead straight line across my yard on a mission that I knew nothing of. She said, it moved with a purpose and at a speed that had little to do with this reality, I think. It definitely was a cat, but a strange one. It was black all over, even blacker than the backdrop of a dark garden. Its two ears were pointed and erect, but it was the tail that drew my attention, held out behind its body, absolutely ramrod straight. Even more curiously, it seemed to be running slightly levitated, as if it did not seem to have its feet on the ground. I had the impression that it looked like a cartoon film. A curious two-dimensional quality graced the whole episode, as if I was watching a silent movie. There was no noise of any kind. Absolute silence prevailed throughout the experience. And going down to the rose arch with a measuring tape next morning, I reckoned it must have been about two foot six inches tall and five foot long, more the size of a panther than a domestic cat. Most puzzling of all to me, and, you know, I interject here, this is indeed very interesting, and I'm not sure if the Bigfoot literature has anything of this kind. She said, most puzzling of all to me was the light which surrounded this black cat. I cannot account for it. It didn't glow. It was not translucent. The cat itself was not luminous, and beyond a few inches surrounding the apparition I could see nothing but there seemed to be a pinky-blue light around the phenomenon. It was very faint, and there seemed to be a vague swirl as the cat moved through on its quest. And in light of what Pat was saying about activities of demons and their straight lines and so forth, she adds, Incidentally, the path the cat was taking with such determination was at a direct right angle with the other straight line made by the footpath along the house. I was reminded of old folklore about not building houses on fairy pathways, and if one did, to always let the fairy folk pass unhindered through open doorways and the like. In this case, my rose arch. So I thought that was a really interesting letter, because it sort of combines 
the experience of seeing what was apparently a panther-like animal. And a lot of the characteristics that the old-fashioned traditional daemons have. Yes, I like that account a lot, especially that little detail about the glow. I don't think I've ever heard a story like that in Bigfoot lore, but it might be in there somewhere. And you do have some stories in the book where the big cats have glowing eyes. You have stories where they just seem to fade out and dissipate. Oftentimes they walk into some tall brush and like that, they're gone. I read that several times. But it's an interesting detail about the walking path too. And I think that's where your book really takes off is when you get into the topography of the landscape where these encounters happen. Because there do seem to be some commonalities to the sighting locations that might very well relate to the way energy flows through a landscape. That seems like a big deal. Can you talk to us about that a bit? Yes, indeed, Greg. One of the things, when I started to research this, one of the striking things was that these big cats do seem to favor certain topographical features, principally, for instance, railways. They're constantly seen on and around railways. And in fact, one railway worker who was checking the line at night was followed several miles by a big cat, a black panther-type creature, as he walked up the line. The other places they seem to find themselves are quarries and holes in the ground and steep edges of things precipices, I suppose, railways, gates, tunnels, anything that is like a hole in the ground generally seems to attract those sorts of creatures, or at least that's where they seem to manifest, let's put it that way. One of the interesting things about big cats is that, well, they've often been compared to the folkloric black dogs, which occur in, in the folklore of Great Britain as well. And black dogs are generally found near watercourses and streams and rivers, whereas big mystery big cats appear along railways and rather unusual topographical features. Shall I give you a little golf example? courses too? Yeah, and golf. They courses. love a golf course for some bizarre reason. They do. <laughs> I think it's because golf courses are a very manufactured, man-made arrangement of roughs and smooths. And if we were to go down the Taoist route, which I won't, but maybe Pat will. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we could also say golf courses in some cases, especially here in the States, are obviously developed, but they're the closest thing to uninterrupted nature that we leave in place sometimes. Well, that's it. They are sort of liminal places in themselves because they're half nature, but half civilized, you know. Yeah. And the words rough and smooth capture that kind of ambiguity that surrounds golf courses. You know, greens and fairways versus the rough, that sort of thing. There's a rather interesting account from a man who's out at night poaching with his friend. He was shining his his huge lamp around and he saw a big cat disappearing up a railway embankment onto the line. And he wrote, he said, the following day in broad daylight, I walked along the track opposite the gateway, which is where we'd seen the animal emerge in the first place. And he said, 
This track runs across fields parallel to the railway lines. About a quarter of a mile from the road, a large conduit pipe runs under the railway track and carries overflow water in the bad weather down into the stream that runs alongside the railway line on the field side. The height of the pipe is about four or five feet, and the length of it I have no idea, because my dog wouldn't enter it, but whined and tried to pull off his lead. So there was a huge collection there of interesting topographical features, tunnels, rails, holes, streams, paths, which if you were going to configure a place where a big black cat might appear, those are the features that you would expect one to. Mm -hmm. And it did actually appear, and it terrified his dog, and it terrified him too. <laughs> well, that makes sense. And to dig deeper into why those are features one might expect to have a sighting around and the comparisons with the spectral hellhound black dog phenomena, I saw a presentation that you gave at an event called Megalithomania. <laughs> really great name, great brand. And you went deeper into comparing these two types of demonic manifestations along the lines of yin and yang or masculine feminine. And that some of these areas that these cats are found could be considered landscapes of feminine energy. Like you say, tunnels, even craters seem to be described quite often. And I thought that was pretty interesting because if we're talking about a relationship with these beings and earth energy or ley lines or window areas, some kind of electromagnetic connection, maybe it relates to the form. You say that with the dogs, they're reported to be along train tracks way more often than they aren't, which is, of course, a very straight conductive feature around the landscape. And there are other examples, but these clusters and overlaps and trends, I think they get us a lot deeper into understanding how this all works, you know? Yeah, absolutely, Greg. I mean, the subject gets deeper and deeper and more and more difficult the more you get into it. It really does. It's a bit of a nightmare, really. But I was very interested by the sort of that Taoist approach where aspects of the landscape can be described as yin, feminine, sort of sunken, low places, marshy places, winding roads and so forth, or yang, masculine. I mean, these are very broad definitions, and I'm sure I'm, I'm doing a great disservice to Taoism when I describe it in this way. But yang would be more elevated spots, pointed areas, and you know, the Chinese art of feng shui and organization of the landscape was mainly aimed at finding a harmonious balance between those two types of landscape feature and thus harmonious balance between the energies inherent in the landscape. I mean, we would call them masculine and feminine, but those would be very broad ideas. I mean, they would really... You know, you couldn't really apply that to anything more specific. The earth tiger is what the Chinese called it. And again, I'm not really a, an expert on it, on that sort of philosophy. But the very fact that these big cats appear in areas that perhaps, well, I thought perhaps that the long straight railway tracks, which would be a sort of a yang 
feature of the landscape, masculine, straight, organised, might precipitate perhaps a complementary energy in the form of a mystery big cat, which would be more, you could describe it perhaps as more a, a yin sort of manifestation. But there again, it holds on the ground, you know, tunnels, pipes, dew ponds, bomb craters, quarries, quarries, thank you, would perhaps, perhaps the yin energies, you know, would sort of gather in those sorts of places. And again, perhaps they would precipitate the appearance of a big black cat as a representation of that particular kind of energy. I mean, these are wild speculations. It was helped by the fact that this rather wonderful woman, or rather, well, she wasn't a wonderful woman, actually. She was she was the person that wrote the book, but the person that did the research was a chap called Ivan Bunn, who plotted the sightings of black dogs in folklore along the rivers of East Anglia, which is the eastern coast of Britain. And he found an absolute correlation between sightings of black dogs along these watercourses. And again, you wonder if the sort of the winding, meandering paths of little streams and rivers would precipitate perhaps a complementary yang figure in the form of a dog. This is a very vague idea, Greg, as you can see, but <laughs> it's interesting that these, I mean, you just have to follow up every clue you can. I could give the example, for instance, of a friend of mine, Jonathan McGowan, who encountered a puma on a bridge over a river. When I say puma, it was one of these creatures, but it wasn't black, it was brown. And as he ran towards it, it ran towards him. And when he got to the bridge, it just vanished into thin air. But what it had left on the bridge was a wet paw print, just unmistakably that of a big cat. So you can see that they, whatever you can say about mystery big cats, you can also say the opposite, which is absolutely typical of the daemonic world. And absolutely suited to Patrick as a subject because he's a bit like that himself. Ah, <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> Leave me alone, will you? It's interesting that it is possible to correlate certain creatures with certain topographies. For instance, lake monsters. There are hundreds of sightings of lake monsters often in quite small and unpromising lakes, you know, which wouldn't be deep enough to accommodate a monster, but yet you see them. And you could even argue that Bigfoot or Sasquatch has its own special terrain as well, mountains particularly, and forests, or both, you know. But, you know, we don't have that sort of dramatic, we don't have vast lakes in the British Isles, we don't have huge mountains, we don't have vast forests. So it's more difficult to correlate this sort of... It's more difficult to say that these cats are connected to nature or are nature spirits in some sense. So it's difficult to know, to revert to your question, why cats? 
it's very difficult to know. It's tempting to say something like, if you live in a small country that is over-tame and over-civilized, it will throw up some, a bit like the, un, the repressed unconscious, will throw up some vivid and dangerous and exciting wild creature. And it may be that that's the case. But why black cats? We don't know, except that perhaps their very blackness and their very strangeness, their very alienness, is designed to show us that they're not just natural creatures, you know, that there is something that they resemble natural creatures, but there is also something supernatural about them. But right. to be honest, you know, if you try and say why cats and why there, you're clutching at straws or clutching, in Merrily's case, at Taoism, you know, <laughs> which is fair enough, yes. but, you know, it's fair enough, but it, it's hard to know, you know. Yes, it's hard to find logic in things that don't play by the rules. For all we know, maybe they actually think they're blending in by appearing as animals. We can really only guess. But I like the idea that they're invoking some sort of initiation by being just outside of what is considered normal. So if you have the eyes to see, if you reflect on the experience deeply, you are led down a deeper path of inquiry. And Merrily makes an interesting suggestion at one point that because we don't believe in this stuff anymore, because we don't give it our respect like we might have in previous ages, they can actually attract more of our attention by appearing as an out-of-place animal. Because, of course, that is when they do prompt police hunts and deeper investigations, more so than if someone said they saw a fairy or a mothman of some kind. The current culture wouldn't spring into action in the same way as they do for a big cat sighting. So if our conscious attention or energy is a type of currency they consider valuable, it's not a bad form to take because it's not as big of a stretch for a big cat to be out there, and it's also something people consider dangerous to just leave alone, so they engage with it, they go looking for it, they're more prone to explore. And I thought that was a pretty interesting take. Yeah, exactly, Greg. They're sort of enough like a, a recognizable animal to attract the attention, and yet they're elusive enough to drive you nutty, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. After I'd been researching it for a while, I found that I managed to dispel most of the facts and fallacies about mystery big cats. You know, I could see that they weren't escaped pets. They weren't an indigenous species. And I thought after a while that I'd come to the end, really. I couldn't think what, what else to think about them. Except that after a while, I think everybody who investigates these creatures, and I would include Bigfoot in this, people start to smell a rat. And you get the feeling that you're kind of being played with, that you're being teased. And I started to wonder whether, in fact, the whole point about their trickiness, the difficulty one has in pinning them down in any way, you know, even the forms they take aren't consistent. And you start to wonder whether it's this very trickiness 
that has the significance and whether their ambiguity could be the key rather than the obstruction to understanding the whole phenomenon. And of course, that's where I derive great insight from Pat's books, that this is the whole point of Dayton's, is that they confuse you and they offer you, you know, when you finally think you're going to go mad, they offer you a really a different perspective on what reality is. Every time you think you've put your finger on it, they've squeezed out from under that, that finger. You know, every time you, you encounter that big cat on the riverbank, you look down for one minute and it's gone. Even photographs are, are always interesting. All photographs of diamonds are as kind of just slightly, none of them are quite as clear as you want them to be. There are photographs of Bigfoot, there are photographs of UFOs, there are photographs of big cats, but none of them are unequivocal. You know, they're always, if they're too clear, they usually turn out to be fakes. It's almost as if the diamonds know how to be photographed to increase the mystery, to remain as blurry and as ambiguous as the actual sighting itself. Absolutely. There are several photos in the book that are impressive, but as you say, just shy of a real obvious smoking gun kind of image. Still cool, though. But another question that I think might be on people's minds would be if there has been any sort of follow-up or investigation done to look for similarities in the lives of people following one of these sightings. Could they be an omen or a warning of some kind? These people tend to suffer a tragedy in the weeks after a sighting, things like that. Obviously, that was a theme with the Mothman, and I talked to Mike Clellan previously about weird owl sightings that tend to shapeshift. Maybe another demonic manifestation, but Harbinger of Doom talk does come up in conversations surrounding this sort of stuff. I wonder if we have any commonalities among the people who have seen the big cat form and what it might have meant to them. Well, it's interesting that you should ask that, actually, Greg, because the answer is broadly no. The black dogs of folklore are generally regarded as an omen of death or this or that or the other, particularly if they appear you know, in the house or in dreams. But as far as I know, big cats don't really presage anything other than a complete change of life in the person that's encountered them, in the sense that they often say that they had been sceptical and what they had in fact encountered was a completely different type of reality because they knew perfectly well that there are no Black Panthers at large in England and yet what they were was looking at one. And one chap that I quote in the book, Mike Coggan, was absolutely astounded to find one running ahead of his car, just a few feet ahead of it, and he saw that it, it was a black panther, a huge creature, and he was absolutely terrified, but he noticed that it was chasing a rabbit. And he said, well, you know, I did see that black panther as clear as anything. It was That's what it was, a big cat. And he said, I also saw the rabbit, but I saw the cat for longer than the rabbit. But nobody questions whether or not I had seen a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a fair point for him to make. 
I think when you mentioned initiation earlier, that you, as you know, Greg, that's a subject close to my heart. And I think that might be something to do with all the appearances of daimons, that for one blinding moment, people have a glimpse into something they just can't get their heads round. And yet it's unquestionably real, more real than everyday life. And people remark not just on the natural nature of the, as it were, of the big cats, but how sort of stunning they are, how beautiful they are, how graceful they are, how glossy, how shining. You know, it's kind of like an epiphany in many cases. People, you think they'd be terrified, but often they're not. Often they just sort of stare at the animal and the animal stares back. And the experience is one of awe, not of fright. So it seems to take place in its own space, as it were, this encounter, and people are left scarred by it. Their worldview has shifted. It's been just pushed sideways. I suppose most people forget it and carry on with their normal lives, but it's at the back of their minds. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people think more deeply about is the reality we take for granted the only reality, or indeed the real reality. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point, because I'd say, Greg, that the effect that these creatures have on people, they're awestruck very often, and very often they, they do find them absolutely beautiful. I quote um, a couple called Ray and Evelyn Robson, because they watched one of these black panther-type animals strolling along a dry stone wall quite close to them, and Evelyn said it was absolutely huge and pure black. And Ray said, that's the gospel truth. He said, my wife and I were so shocked. It had a beautiful, shining fur coat. It was gorgeous. And another woman, Jan Edwards, saw something very similar. And she said, with the sun shining down on, on this creature, she said, it looked like liquid velvet. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, People constantly say how beautiful and awesome these creatures are, rippling with health and muscular and with this unbelievable shine on the fur, which is very interesting because, you know, a leopard doesn't shine in the same way. It shows up the rosette spots behind the blackness if it's a melanistic leopard. Actually, I do compare, perhaps rather weirdly, black panthers to men in black, which are, as we know, a feature of the UFO experience. Right, right. Because blackness is a sort of feature of the men in black, obviously, and it's very much a feature of these panther-like animals in Britain. Yeah, that's a worthy thing to note. It's a big theme with this stuff. Men in black, black-eyed children, shadow figures... It seems to just relate to the void and the dark, not so clear quality to all this stuff, and the overall mystery. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but notice the interesting sort of correlations. The fact that, you know, men in black have old-fashioned suits and they have the slick hairstyle of the 1950s. They're very, you know, shiny hair, and they drive these shiny black Cadillacs. <laughs> you know, 
They're black and they're polished and they're shiny, much in the way that the big cats are. And, you know, once this idea had come to me, I thought, well, you know, one of the striking features about men in black is that they're incompetent. You know, you have to show them how to eat food and they never know what to do. They're clumsy as though they're not at home in this world. And so I, I sort of reread my data to see if mystery big cats could have something of that incompetence about them. And sure enough, they do. They behave very strangely, oddly. When people encounter them, they often are running, but running hunkered down close to the ground, which is a strange way of doing it. And sometimes they are wandering along, oblivious of their surroundings, as though they're in a dream. And sometimes they're running as if they're cowering from something that you can't see. But very often they give the impression of mimicking the purposeful actions of biological big cats, but without a purpose in mind, rather in the way that men in black are sort of seem to be mimicking the activities of normal people, humans, but not very successfully quite often. I thought that was interesting. Very much so. The mimicking quality was something I was going to ask you about because it seems like there are animal carcasses in the wake of some of these big cats. And obviously experts can tell the difference between prey that's been killed by a wolf or a dog versus a wild feline. They go about the process in totally different ways. And as you say in the book, sometimes these carcasses are even up in trees, which is clearly a big cat thing. But it's a little weird for them to do that, and it starts making me think that maybe my concept of what a diamond is could be a bit off, because I tend to think of them as higher spirits that are just taking the shape of an animal as a mask of some kind, embodying that thing. But when we talk about them actually carrying out wild animal behavior, then it gets a bit fuzzier. Maybe they just do it because it's fun. But these situations do tend to be described as an encounter with something of a higher-than-expected intelligence, with some human-like reactions and aspects to their behavior, things like once they're seen, the creature will stop and stare back, and then make sure you see it disappear into the brush. Kind of like they have total awareness and control over the experience, so it becomes hard to know what to think. Yeah, exactly which isn't the natural behavior of an actual wild animal, particularly. Uh, they're very cool. They stroll across the road in front of cars, and that's another feature of the Sasquatch, apparently. Yeah. Where's Germa and his ilk? They seem to wait till the car's nearly upon them, and then they cross the road, and that's very much a feature of the big cats. As if they want to be noticed. Yes, as if they... Definitely want to be noticed. But what you were saying, Greg, about the kills, yeah, they are associated with sheep kills, in particular in Britain, and deer, and there are various photographs of poor animals that have been killed in a very cat-like manner, which is to say, very unlike that of a dog, a cat kills very cleanly and eats very cleanly, whereas a dog, you know, tears at it randomly, but a cat peels back the skin, and in the case of a sheep, the fleece, which I dare say isn't very palatable, and eats it from 
inside very neatly without tearing randomly at the, at the skin. You know, many, many farmers have lost sheep and they attribute that to big cats that they've seen on their land. But one of the features also is usually very little blood on the ground, and that's a feature also of demonic predation, because, of course, blood is one of the most demonic of substances. It occurs in myth even, doesn't it? And I'm going to let Pat describe Hercules is summoning of filling trenches with blood. Pat, come on, you know that one. Oh, well, you know, blood is the life force and so on. And when Heracles wanted to talk to the dead, he filled a trench with blood and summoned the dead. And they couldn't speak until they'd taken a mouthful of blood from out of the trench. And then he could question them. So, you know, the idea of blood and blood sacrifice and so on is too ancient and too widespread and too complicated to go into. I wouldn't go down that route myself. No, well, I don't really go down that route at all. But uh, (laughs) I mean, human flesh is pretty much a demonic substance itself. You know, mysterious scars appear on it. And certainly there have been people who have encountered a mystery big cat sometimes do fall foul of them and find that they have been damaged. One woman found she was leaving. Well, a big cat knocked her over, let's put it this way. But she didn't think it had in any way hurt her until she got undressed that night and she found three slash marks on her ribs. Her coat hadn't even been torn, so how they got there, nobody knows. But that's a rather sinister aspect of the demonic world, is that they can actually hurt you, or mark you, I should say, not hurt, mark, through your clothes. It's a feature also of abduction experiences. You know, people are left with abduction scars and so forth. Yes. Pat would, would say any initiation involves scarring. In my book, Dimonic Reality, you know, I have a chapter called Dimonic Traces. And sort of physical contact with dimones is sort of a bit like the photographs. Nothing is conclusive that they're kind of there, but they're not that significant. In fairy law, you know, a fairy will give you a what the Irish call a blast, or will touch you, and we get the idea of being touched in the head from that. If you're touched by a fairy, you know, you're a little bit balmy ever after. Or you can be given a stroke by the fairy, and we still have used that word today for people who are paralyzed down one side used to be attributed to being struck by a fairy. And even if you encounter aliens from UFOs, they can give you a nasty blast as well, can't you? They have their ray guns and you have rashes and you feel dizzy for days afterwards, quite apart from the scars you get from alien abductions. But big cats are the same. Where there's a mystery big cats, I mean, wherever there's contact, it's always surprisingly slight. If it were a leopard, leopards are unbelievably powerful. You can be walking along a road in, as I, I, when I was walking along a road in the dark in Zimbabwe as a boy, 
you know, I was picked up by a man in the car who was white with shock at the sight of me doing it. I was hitchhiking around, didn't know better. And, you know, he said, you could be walking with five people and suddenly you'll notice there's only four of you. A leopard can just take you completely silently, can kill you with one blow and drag you up a tree before you can turn around, you know. So clearly these mystery big cats, there are scratches. A man cycling very near here in Dorset, actually, down a hill, was knocked off his bicycle by a big cat who jumped out of the hedge. If it had been a leopard, you know, he'd have been dead. So these sort of physical contacts, rather like the photographs, are suggestive rather than conclusive, you know, and they always seem to be like that. It just deepens the mystery rather than providing the evidence we all crave. Yes, it speaks to that coaxing quality we mentioned. It's just enough to hook people, but never enough to confirm. And I just really like that idea that maybe they take the form of these big cats today because it's a more strategically effective hook than something even more far out that we can't even deal with. But Patrick, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on where we might be with a better understanding of these things culturally. Because Charles Fort had this theory that we'd go through some different ages, or dominance, as he said. A dominant of religion, followed by a dominant of science. Those definitely seem to shake out. But then we'd enter a dominant of wider inclusion, where we bring back the things we couldn't look at through a purely scientific lens. And these are wide arcs, of course. Who knows where we are exactly, or if it even follows that pattern. And maybe I'm in a bit of a bubble because I do shows like this, but it does feel like we're inching closer to a cultural curiosity, if not acceptance of this sort of stuff, more so than previous decades that I've been around for. What do you think? You'd know more about that than me, since I'm in a bubble of one in rural Dorset. But, I mean, the most outstanding change since I wrote Daimonic Reality, you know, and the most outstanding change has, of course, been the internet. That, you know, the innumerable websites, which, I mean, when I was writing my book, I had to go to libraries and read books and plagiarize and steal first-person accounts from various <laughs> books. You know, it took forever. But now you get on the internet and the actual people who've had the experience are there talking. You know, it's absolutely fantastic. For instance, I'd never heard of dogmen. Turns out there's a vast dogmen culture. I, you know, I got hooked on the dogmen sites, these, <laughs> these strange creatures who look exactly like the Egyptian god Anubis, you know, dog-headed men. And so I would say that, yes, awareness of the supernatural or, or of the daimonic is much more widespread than it was because we don't just have books, and there aren't any fewer books, I don't think. Books have proliferated, but we also have the vast resources of the internet and the thousands of mysterious websites, which you could link from one to another. And I mean, whole days go by when I find myself sucked into, I don't know, Bigfoot websites, dogmen websites, UFO websites, you know, you can go quite mad. So, yeah. So, I think it is more more widespread, but I don't think it's any more... I don't think it's made 
any more converts amongst the mainstream bodies, if you see what I mean. I don't mm -hmm. think the scientists have changed their attitude. I don't think they've been, nobody's been recruited from religion or science, I don't think, or any more than they were in the past. I just think there are a lot more ordinary people who are aware of these things now. But whether they are intrigued by them or go along with them or believe in them or not, I just don't know. I just don't know. Maybe there's just always only a certain number of people, a lot, but only a certain number who are just intrigued by mystery, as I was from a child, you know. Mm -hmm. When I heard about mysteries from a child, I just couldn't get them out of my mind. I was fascinated, you know. But a lot of my friends just, they looked blank. They didn't say anything. They didn't, I'd say, isn't that mysterious? They'd go, well, so what, you know. <laughs> That's a reaction I am quite familiar with. Well, guys, looks like we did it. Two hours talking largely about mystery big cats. I don't know what I was worried about. It really is a fascinating subject. If you want to explore these beings between the worlds, then you might as well talk about them in their most common modern form, and that's the ABCs. Before we go, we should certainly remind the people of other works that you guys have written that they might be interested in, and any future plans for new books, if there are any. Let them know. Oh, well, uh, no, I'm. this is the new edition of my book, Mystery Big Cats, Greg, but Pat's got a few in the pipeline, haven't you? Yeah, this is Merrily's show. I'm not going to do any advertising, Greg. People could go to my website and feast their eyes. Fair enough. It's a classy move. But, of course, it is all in the family. Yeah, true, true, <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll do the ad for him. If you go to his website, it's, what is it, Harper? www.harper.org slash Patrick. That's me. And you can see my books there. Now, who are James and John Harper? Are there sibling authors of yours? That's right. Right on. They seem to have some pretty interesting work out there, too. Oh, my brother James is a fantastic poet, a famous and acclaimed poet, rightly so. And my other brother is a fantastic man, a wit, raconteur, and gypsy. So, yeah, we live in their shadow, really. We're just humble sort of drudges, you know, writing, churning up books <laughs> and fabulous art but you know good stuff who knew there were more than just two interesting branches on the harper tree but it was a real pleasure patrick great to talk to you again merrily nice to make your acquaintance and i'm glad patrick showed me your revised edition of mystery big cats it was a lot of fun enjoy the rest of your night guys Thanks, thank you Greg. it's been an honor thank it's been you great much. bye now bye Praise be to he, good people of the internet. THC's return to cryptozoology. There we have it. This was one where when we did the recording, I was pretty worried that I couldn't make it sound good enough and I was going to have to trash it. I was even more convinced that I would put a preface on it warning people about the quality. But when I got it back from our editor, I didn't think we needed that. Of course, I kind of just skimmed around, but I didn't hear anything too terrible, especially when it's compared to how I actually captured all of this. And 
I can still tell that some of the technical stuff was distracting on their end a little bit, though. It is what it is. I apologize to the Harpers. And I told you guys, I am testing new systems in July. I tried a new recording platform that was just a bit complicated on this one, and of course, I can't really help over the line. I can't see what's going wrong on their end, but I was hearing myself in a terrible echo, and we fumbled around with it for over 30 minutes. And eventually, I just said, you know, screw it. Let's record it, and I will sort it out later. Something every audio professional would tell you to never do. <laughs> Looking back, I think what happened is they used the link to join the session twice. So we had an audio version of that effect where you're in a bathroom with a mirror on the wall in front of you and behind you. And there's just like this crazy infinite visual echo, I guess you could call that. But long story short, I spent many hours chopping this up and separating all of us onto our own tracks and boosting Marilee's levels and lowering mine and Patrick's and ugh. Basically, just getting it as good as I could before sending it off to our editor, who in turn worked his magic and sent it back even better. I still hear some artifacts and some of the rustling parts that really couldn't be fixed, but they were sitting on a couch together, sharing one set of earbuds, and again, in retrospect, my guess is that those earbuds had a microphone on them like so many do, and when Patrick would adjust it, he might have been touching the microphone and didn't know it, and that's why it got so crazy loud, and that's why his voice was so much louder than her voice, because he was right there up on it. These are my guesses, reverse engineering the issues we were having and not being able to see or help them really all that much. Yes, I'm sure I will still get some complaints, but they're not going to understand how far we actually went to get this where it is, and that's fine. On the positive side, the next two episodes I already have recorded and they sound pretty much perfect. I can close my eyes and actually think that we were in the same room and I have nailed the program I'm going to be using going forward and we are off to the races. But content-wise, this is one of the most common requests I get to return to cryptozoology. And when Patrick said, hey man, I'm trying to throw a little attention on my sister's book, would you be interested in checking it out? I kind of roped him into joining us since I really loved his insights in the episode we did. And I think he's highlighting the most appropriate framework for these things. But I also did worry that it was a bit light for a two-hour conversation. I thought it was maybe too specific. But, you know, I didn't really feel that way after actually reading the book. I understand that it can be hard at first to shake the feeling that it's just an undiscovered wild animal out there, which is why that was the first thing I wanted to attack so that this subject would keep your interest a little bit better. With a little knowledge of real wildcats, it's pretty clear this is something else, plus the glowing eyes and the fadeaways, but skeptics would just chalk that up to witness error, I guess, although it seems like a pretty hard thing to get wrong. Oh, you're right. The uh, big cat didn't just fade away in front of my eyes. My bad. <laughs> so I thought this was a fun topic to say that we've covered and have in the archive. When you stack up a list of the cryptozoology shows, I think this definitely has a place in the repertoire. 
Marilee's book is the quintessential book on this topic, and Patrick has a pretty deep knowledge of many esoteric and spiritual things. Alchemy, ritual, the cross-dimensional mechanism of exchange, and I very much appreciated him joining us and adding a bit of uh, flavor to it. Like most episodes around here, we laid a good foundation in the first hour and got to meander into a lot of other topics in the second. In this one, we talked about Marilee's insights from the Sasquatch Chronicles show, Grimalkin, and the notion of accidental summoning, probably my favorite story of the day, fairy whistling, Hermes, Silicon Valley, and roast beef, the paranormal abilities of Patrick and Marilee's grandmother, dealings and reciprocal relationships with the Daimons, the food of the gods, and the daimonic spectrum that's out there, and the hierarchy, you could say. And yes, I don't know that diamonds and cryptozoology are topics that are at the forefront of a lot of minds out there right now, but I don't want to be so obsessed with the goings-on inside of human culture that we forget that there is a bigger game in town. There is a superstructure that is always fascinating beyond the narrative of the day or the political infighting and the virus paranoia. It felt kind of important to let the THC pendulum swing back into that territory. But be ready, because it's about to swing back in a big way. And I'll see you then. Big thanks to the Harper siblings for taking the time. Apologies to them for the added complexity. And to you guys for the subpar audio. I hope it didn't take away from the content too much. But we do what we can. I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, elusive spirits, hidden energies, and demonic companions. Your fucking move. Lucid dreams are so vivid, cause you go to bed at seven. And your brain comes alive, cause you hate your nine to five. You wake up with a dread, and make sure your cats are fed. Did your brain talk to a ghost, who moved your coffee and your toast, as you listen to the higher side chats? You get to your desk and your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows to a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around, you insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down and you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'd be invited to Bohemia Grove to a Bilderberg Club? Oh, do you think you'd be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down to the center of the earth Through the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down, and the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you, cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 